Lord, I just thank you for this group this morning, and I thank you for the journey that we're about to embark on as we move through this second half of Hebrews, and we see more of who your son is, and we experience your presence here. Father, your presence is with us every day, every moment, but how often we lose sight of it. And we lose sight of the fact that you're speaking to us and that you have spoken to us in your son and that you continue to speak to us. And we just thank you, Father, that um, we have the privilege of being in your presence together today as a group and that we have the privilege of being in your presence anytime we so desire. We can walk right into your throne room of grace and sit at your feet and, and experience you and your son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, that is such a joyous, joyous gift. Father, I thank you for um, the gift of your Son, for the gift of salvation, for the blood of Jesus Christ that has given us eternal life. And Father, I just, I just pray that um, as a result of this study that you would, you would just come down on our level and open the word to us so that we can understand, and not only understand so that we have head knowledge, but so that our lives can be transformed and that we can be, um, look and live more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that you pour out your Holy Spirit in here and you pour it out on the lives of these men and women. Bless our time together now. Let your Holy Spirit speak so that we understand and that we can see a glimpse of the whole of this book, this wonderful book that you left for in, in entirety for us to learn from and to grow from. We thank you and we praise you in your son's name. Amen. Okay. You might want to just get your Bible because I'm going to read quite a few scriptures out of this, this section and um, put us in context. One thing that's helpful when we're reading a letter, which Hebrews is a letter, it doesn't read quite like a letter because it doesn't open like other letters that you read. So many of the other letters, like if you all are on Wednesday night, I think they're doing um, 2 Timothy, and it says Paul to Timothy. You know, he often opens his letters that way, so you know who wrote it and who he's writing to and why he's writing. This one doesn't identify the author. We have no idea who the author is. There's lots of debate about who the author is, but we honestly don't know who wrote Hebrews at all. And there is no consensus on who wrote Hebrews. Some people in the past thought Paul did, and you are sometimes, especially if you're listening, reading an older commentary or listening to an older pastor, they'll reference Paul. But Paul, most scholars do not believe Paul wrote this letter at all. So, so we don't know, and it doesn't matter. God did not retain that for us. That wasn't his point. But we do know that it was written to a certain group of people, probably somewhere, it was in the first century, somewhere between 60 and 95 AD. Now the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And by the way, I encourage you all to take notes. You'll remember things better if you take notes. 70 AD. The temple is not mentioned in this book, but the tabernacle is. Um, most people think it was written around the mid-60s. So these are some of the, the earliest Christians. They were Jewish Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, although there is room for the fact that there were Gentiles within the congregation. But as you read the book, you can clearly see that these people had a rich 
background in Jewish thought and in Jewish worship. They thoroughly knew the Old Testament scriptures. Hebrews, more than any other book, is steeped in Old Testament uh, direct quotes, direct references. In fact, one of the things I love about studying Hebrews that I always tell people, it's one of my favorite, probably my two, I love studying covenant as well, but I love um, Hebrews because to me, Hebrews really unlocks the Old Testament and ties them together. And not only that, I really believe that Hebrews, more than any other book, really shows you the full depth and richness of what Christ achieved on the cross. Because we do go back. We do go back and see that Old Testament priesthood. And that's something we're going to do this semester. We're going to delve more into that high priestly office and what that office was and the Old Testament sacrifices and the tabernacle and how it was set up and how all of that was pointing to Christ and he is the complete fulfillment of it. And when you see that, for me, the first time I studied that, suddenly all these New Testament scriptures that I knew about Jesus and him dying on the cross and shedding his blood took on so much more depth and meaning for me than anything else I had ever seen. And I pray that for you as well. So... We know that about them. We know they had been Christians long enough to mature, but they had not, because we see that in chapter 6. They had not matured. They were experiencing persecution and suffering. They had suffered imprisonment, seizure of their property. Things were getting difficult for them. And if this is when we think it is, this is right before the huge outpouring of persecution by Nero on the Roman church. Now, we don't know where these people are. That's another thing we don't know for sure. There's lots of debate about where exactly they are. But we do know they are a Jewish congregation. They, because of their persecution and suffering, the intensity of that was blurring their thinking about who Christ was. And there was the temptation to go back to Judaism, to take the path of least resistance and go back to this old form of worship and following God that they had lived with their entire lives because Judaism was not persecuted. Christianity was. Judaism was protected. And so they were being tempted to go back to that. And they were in need of encouragement and exhortation to persevere. And they were in need of someone to come along and say, whoa, wait a minute, let's rethink who Jesus is and how he is superior to anything or anyone you would ever want to go back to. And in fact, there is no going back. You can't go back. There is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ and him alone. There is nothing to go back to. And so very systematically, this author is going to lay out his argument, starting in chapter 1, for the superiority of Christ. And he's going to teach, and he's going to encourage, and he's going to exhort, and he's also going to give five pretty stern warnings to these people. And we saw three of them last semester. Um, one of them that was incredibly difficult and has a lot of controversy about it, so we won't really talk about that today. If you missed it, you missed it. Um, I was just glad to get through it, but uh, we'll have two more this semester. But I think the most important thing to remember, everybody, y'all, about the warnings is the warnings were not meant to scare them. The warnings were meant to exhort them to persevere 
and endure. That's what their, their intended meaning was for. And you have to interpret them in the light of that. They were, they were real dangers, but they certainly were not something that had happened yet. And they are particular. You, we do have to keep in mind they are particular to this particular group of people at this particular point in history. Um, I need to pause just for a second because I forgot an announcement. <laughs> there is a list going around. Patty has it right here. Um, if, if I knew you were coming, I've got your name on there. Check your information. If it's missing, please put it on there. And the suggested donation for the books is $10. If you don't have $10, don't worry about it, okay? But it'll, it'll move this way in a minute, okay? So in light of, back to the, the warnings, what they were going, in light of what these people are going through, um, you can understand why they would begin to question. Is Jesus who I thought he was? I embraced him. I left behind all of this that was ingrained in my life, in my thinking, in my upbringing, in my tradition, to embrace Jesus. And initially there was joy and delight in that, and rest, spiritual rest, but now things are so bad, I'm beginning to question it. Is he who he says he is? Is God who, is, has God really said this is his son? Is it really worth following him? Is, does God see what's going on? Does he see what's happening to us? Does, is he even aware? Does he care? You know, does he know? Why is he silent? And is at that point, when you get, that, get those questions that they're experiencing and they're struggling with in your mind, and then you pull open, open up Hebrews chapter 1, then it begins, these verses take on so much more. Because look what he says. Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You can just hear them thinking about that. They know that. Steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, they know how God has spoken. How he has spoken through events, through natural events, through unnatural events, through miracles, through signs, through wonders, through all the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, Haggai, Habakkuk, all of those people that have spoken and has been recorded in their scriptures. So they know that and they're familiar with that. And then that word of contrast, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he is saying to them, look, folks, God, he did speak. He not only spoke, he spoke wholly, completely, with finality in his son. Everything that he has been, that he had said before, and just through many different people, in many different ways, at many different times, now has come to fruition in the final word of God speaking, and it's in his son. His son who is, as it says, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And when you study that, what that means, that means he's saying he's God. This is not only my son, flesh and blood. This is God himself 
that has come to you. God incarnate that has come to provide, as it says after that, purification for your sins. And not only that, he is, he is, um, he is king. He is enthroned because he has sat down at my right hand. He has completed the work of everything that has been going on before. Because one thing we'll learn in greater depth this semester is there was no priest that ever sat down in that temple. There were no chairs in that tabernacle. There were no chairs in the temple because the work was never completed, but Jesus completed it with his once-for-all sacrifice and sat down because it was done. Those four verses right there are powerful and they are packed and they really set the stage to whet your appetite to say, wow, what more could this author say? Because you've said so much right there in those four verses. Are you all with me? Okay. So then if we go on, he begins to to systematically lay out, and this is what's interesting about how he does, he begins to just show how Jesus' superiority and how he is better than things they are familiar with, and he starts with the angels by saying he is better than the angels. Look what he says in Hebrews 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jump down to 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Look at what he's saying. He's saying the angels who they held in high regard, the angels are the ones that the, that the law came through the angels. We studied that last semester. But he's saying, you know, number one, Jesus has a superior message to them because he is the son, the begotten son. He has a superior work. He made purification for sins. And not only that, look at this. He's creator. He's the one that laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of his hands. He upholds the world by the word of his power. The creator Angels are created beings. Jesus is the creator. He has a superior position. He's at the right hand of God. He, has a, he is a superior person. He is the son. He is God. He is the son. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Angels are simply ministering spirits sent out to minister to us who will inherit salvation. Angels worship Christ, not the other way around. They are created beings. They do not have a place of authority sitting at the right hand of God. So Jesus is far superior to them. He does not, God does not say about them. When God says, does God say? He doesn't. He doesn't say, you are my sons. You know, he doesn't say, um, sit at my right hand. He doesn't say those things about the angels. He says those about his son. 
So there's no way to elevate the angels at the same level as him. He is way, way above them, worthy of our worship. Where's angels? We're fascinated by them. They're intriguing. They're mysterious creatures. But they should not intrigue us. He should intrigue us. In fact, he says, if you go on toward chapter 2, after laying that out, then he says, therefore, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the man and God, our high priest, the one that made purification. All these things he said about him is the logical outcome, is if Christ is all of this, that it is is essential, you all, that you hang on to the gospel. Persevere, endure, don't drift away, don't neglect it. Don't let the greatness of Christ slip away so that you no longer marvel at what he did and who he is. I, I personally believe that's the heart of that warning, is don't slip away from that. Redirect your thinking. Redirect your thoughts. Don't look back at this back here because, you know what, you can't go back there anyway. Look forward to who he is and remember who he is. Okay. Moving on in later, continuing, he continues to contrast the angels in 2.5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we were speaking. In fact, if you think about it, for a little while, man was made lower than angels. Man was, which it has an implication at some point we will have the elevated above them. But what he says in verse 9, but we see him, meaning Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus lived as a man. He experienced temptation. He suffered. He suffered. And because of that, if you go on down to verse 14, as a natural result of this, the author says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us. We are the children. We are flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus himself, took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, render him inoperative and ineffective. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And again, that's us. We're offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, folks, you all that are suffering and experiencing persecution, remember he did too. He did too. He suffered too. 
and he really did not deserve suffering. And he lived, he lived in flesh and blood. He knows what that temptation is. He knows what you're going through. So when you say, does God care? Yeah, he cares. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. Tony, did you want to make a comment? Oh, you're catching me off guard. Okay, well, that's no, let me think about it, because that's a really good question, and we kind of talked about it a little. I think we talked about it a little bit last semester. Yeah, Bibi, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was the one. Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly good explanation, really, if you all heard BB's. Because of the curse that came, because of the temptation that Satan put before Adam and Eve, and because they succumbed and didn't obey God, death entered in, and sin entered in, and and. Um, relationship was broken between man and God. And it says he had the power, but it uh-huh. does say he has the power. Yeah, he doesn't now. Because, go ahead, I, know, I think I know what you're going to read, go ahead. Well, and, then, and if you keep going, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject yeah. to lifelong slavery. Yeah. So fear of death, and he delivered us from that power of that fear. Of that fear. Of because apart from Christ, what is it? There's fear of death, eternal death, right? Eternal separation from God. No reconciliation, no redemption. And that what fear, I mean, when we, we know, my people who are lost don't understand really the fear that they have, but we know the fear of that, don't we? And then there's a verse, um, somebody help me, is it in 1 Corinthians? Oh, oh, oh um, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Because Christ has conquered it. When he, was, when he died, was buried, and then raised, the resurrection, what did the resurrection do? It took the sting and the fear and the death, and the, um, it was victorious over death. Does that answer your question a little better? See, we did it as a group. I need you all. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. And we don't need, I mean, death is fearful. I think what we fear in death is more the process of death, of, of um, the pain or what we'll associate with it. But as believers, when we have a firm grip on Christ, there shouldn't be fear of, of what comes after because we know where we were going. I've, I've watched my, you know, we watched, Vance and I watched um, his parents, um, godly man and woman. His dad died a few years ago. And his mom is 100, and we, I know this sounds crazy, but we pray every week in our life group, don't we, Phyllis and Keith, for her to die. Because there's, she doesn't know anything anymore. She's just in a bed. She um, can't see. She can't hear. But nothing artificial is keeping her alive. They feed her, and she eats. But there is no, there's what kind of, I mean, she wants to go. When she has moments of uh, where something comes out of her mouth that's lucid. She's praying for God to take her, which is heart-wrenching 
for her because she knows where she's going. She has no fear of death. She wants to go, but she knows she's going to be with her Lord and Savior and live in eternity and that she has no life here anymore. So there, there is no fear. I watched, I've watched them as they aged and got more incapacitated. Their willingness to say, Lord, take us. We're ready to go. We've done everything we want to do. Our kids are in a good place. Our grandchildren are in a good place. We've traveled. We've served the Lord. It's time to go. It's time to be gone. And it is time for her to be gone. So y'all pray for her to go. So And not other people. We had a death in the family this week that we didn't expect. And um, those are hard. Those are hard. Uh, it would be joyous for her. We thought, my husband thought when he was getting the call as soon as possible, he thought, oh, good, mother finally died. And, and it wasn't. His sister-in-law died very unexpectedly, and no one was expecting that. Th- those are difficult. So anyway, okay, moving on to chapter 3. Then in chapter 3, he has finished his discourse about Jesus' superiority to the angels. And now he's going to bring up Moses. Because who was Moses? Moses is one of their great figures in Jewish history. Moses is the one that God raised up and delivered them um, from slavery, from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And by great signs and wonders and the plagues and miracles, led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, hopefully to take them into the Promised Land. We know the rest of the story, and they were not able to, to do that. But he, they revered. And look what he says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Which, by the way, that's why we titled this this um, study, Consider Jesus, because I believe that's, that is such a theme throughout the whole book. Consider him, think on him, meditate on him, look to him, press into him, see who he is, unpack God's word and what I've said about him, because he's the answer for everything in your life. He is the one that you can run to who will be there for you when, when man fails you, when your circumstances fail you. He is there. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses. Here's the comparison. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus was faithful over God's house. That's where those little prepositions become so important when you're reading. For Jesus has been counted more worthy and more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is the creator. He's the one that built the house. Moses is just a servant in the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Notice that. He was just a servant in the house. He was the one that was going to testify to what to Jesus coming later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting until the end. So don't think of Moses as greater. I know, get your Jewish hat on, I know you guys esteem him, and well, you should. He's one of your founding fathers, and well, you should. In fact, in Deuteronomy, I think it's in 
Deuteronomy, I've got it written, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, God himself says there's no one greater than Moses. It is Moses that I spoke face to face to. There's no one greater than him. He says that about him himself. But here he's saying, as great as he was, as, as, as much as I myself, as God revered him, my son is greater because he created the house. He is over the house. He is my son. He is the fulfillment of all the things that Moses testified to. Moses was just a servant in the house. Moving on. In Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 4 comes another, at the end of 3 and into 4, comes another warning to these people. When he says in verse 7 of 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because you remember what happened? They get out into the wilderness, and all they do, they've seen. They've seen the plagues. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, the provision of manna, and yet all they do is, is gripe and complain and murmur and want to go back to Egypt because it was better, and God's just brought them out here to die. And so their, their lack of unbelief in him, even though he has poured forth himself for them, he says, you know what? And remember when you sent the, the spies into the land? And they come back, and I say, yeah, it's a land. It's surely a land flowing with milk and honey. There are wonderful things. They bring some of the produce back from the land. But they said, there's giants in the land. We can't overtake it. And two people say, no, we can. God said we can. But because of their unbelief, God says, because of your unbelief, you know what? You're not going to go into the land. In fact, everybody this age and on will die before I decide to take you into the land. None of them. And they, so they wander in the wilderness 40 years. No, really the first warning is at the beginning of chapter 2. Do not neglect so great a salvation. This, is, this would be the second. Chapter 6 is the third. This one kind of encompasses a large space. And basically what he's saying, going from 3 even into 4, is he's saying, do you remember how your ancestors showed unbelief in the wilderness and forfeited their privilege of going into the promised land that they had been delivered so miraculously from Egypt to go in there, and they had been promised for so many hundreds of years. Don't follow their example. Do not follow their example. They are a negative example, and sometimes negative examples are good examples because then you can see this is the way I don't want to be. You know, have you had one of those in your life, a negative example? I know I have. I have, a, I have a sister that's quite interesting, and I learned very early on I'm not going to be like her. I do not want to be like her. And um, that was a, a good negative example of everything not, not to do. And that's what he's saying. Here's the example of what not to do. Don't, don't be guilty of that kind of unbelief and miss the opportunity of entering his rest. Those people were not allowed in. Now, later, Joshua did take them in to the land, and they did experience a sense of rest 
in that they were able to experience the promised land. But look what he says. If you go into chapter 4, and starting in, I'm going to start in 7. Again, he points a certain day today, saying through David so long ago afterward. In the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So when Joshua led him into the land, if that was it, that was the extent of the rest, David, who came hundreds of years later, wouldn't have said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, the only rest there is is through Jesus Christ. There is no rest apart from him. Don't miss it. And there's an urgency here. If you go back and read through 3 and 4 today, it's, it's, that word today is repeated frequently. Today, 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 if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The offer is out there. The invitation is extended today, but there's an urgency and an implication that someday there will not be a today. And then you've missed it. But there's also the encouragement here to these people that the only rest you will find, the only Sabbath rest, rest from striving to earn your salvation, rest from, from the penalty of sin and the bondage of sin, rest from the fear of death and the sting of death and what death has to bring, rest in the knowledge that we have a Savior who's paid our sin penalty, has made propitiation for us, has satisfied the wrath of God because of our sin. That rest is only available in Jesus. No one else can provide it. That is, I believe that is the heart of what he's saying here. Does that make sense? Don't miss it. Don't, again, don't go back. You can't go back. There's nothing there. There is no rest there. If there was rest there, Joshua would have been the fulfillment of it. But, he, but it wasn't. There was still another one to come, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay, moving on, chapter 4, verse 14. So continuing his line of thought, he says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. These are the beautiful words. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now those verses are going to become even more significant this semester when we see the difference between the Arianic priesthood that they were not able to go into only one high priest once a year was able to go in the Holy of Holies and then with fear and trembling. And you know what? We can go in there every day at any moment. So those words will take on greater um, depth of meaning. Chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, here he's saying, you know what? Jesus was better than the angels. Jesus was better than Moses. Jesus' high priest is better than Aaron, your first high priest, or any high priest that ever came after him in the lineage of the, of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. All of those priests, all of those hundreds of years, you know what? They died. And Jesus is your ultimate high priest who lives forever on your behalf, interceding for you. And he didn't exalt himself. This is a key verse. And this verse down here, five and six, let me read it. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That strange little phrase, and he says it again uh, in verse 10, 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, most of us have no clue who Melchizedek is, let alone be able to say his name. You can impress people with being able to say his name, Melchizedek. You can really impress them if you can spell it. And it's like learning how to say Mephibosheth. When I taught um, uh, Genesis, I learned how to say Mephibosheth. So you can really impress people. Or you can just say it like you know it with authority. I had a pastor say one time, Nancy, you just say it like you know with authority, and people think you know. Because that's what you do. <laughs> so anyway, but it is Melchizedek. And he has brought this up after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, who's Melchizedek? What does that mean, after the order of Melchizedek? And he even says right after that, he goes, you know what? I have a lot to say about that. But y'all aren't ready because you're dull of hearing. You're immature. By now you should be teachers, but you're not. That's what he goes on to say in chapter 6. By now you ought to be able to teach this. But instead, look what he says. Verse 12. Uh, five, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And he does. He says, and this we will do. And it's after this that he gives that very strange warning that all of us struggle with so much that uh, in chapter 6 that we, we did our best with last semester. And if it intrigues you, I can give you all kinds of resources to, to read, and then you'll be even more confused exactly what it means <laughs> Um, but we'll just say, it's a, it's a hard warning, but here's the hope he gives. He gives this warning that is really, even though it, 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 many people elicit fear, it isn't meant to elicit fear. It's, again, what are the warnings there for? To encourage them to endure, to persevere, to, to, to stay the course, to consider Jesus. That's, that's their purpose. And then in verse 8, in verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to have the same 
earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. But, note this phrase, imitators of those, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the reason I say notice that because then he moves in to the next section of chapter 6 and he explain, he, he says, you want to see an example of someone who is an imit- who is a, someone who is faithful? Look in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by himself to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And so he says, You know what? Let me just look back to someone else that you all are so familiar with, your great father Abraham, the great patriarch that you revere and esteem and look to. He was given promises, and yet some of those, which we'll find out in chapter 11, he never even saw fulfilled in his lifetime. But he waited patiently for them, and he didn't. It says, even though he, he had some moments that were not shining in his life, it says he patiently waited. He patiently waited. And then it says in verse 19, this is where we're going to end and where we're going to pick back up. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the, of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest, there's that phrase again, forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's where we ended last semester. Three times that phrase, after the order of Melchizedek, came up and we're like, what do we do with that? What does that mean? That is your lesson next week. Because in chapter 7, now that he's diverted and said, you know, I had a lot, I brought this up, had a lot to say about him, but you're not even ready to hear it. And so I've got to rebuke you for your immaturity, but yet encourage you to press on now. In chapter 7, that will be our whole lesson next week, is who is this Melchizedek? And we're going to answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus is a priest, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? And I guarantee you, I promise you, as confusing as it may seem, you will come out of here next week knowing, I get that now. I know what that means. And then you can impress your friends and your family. (laughs) Questions? Comments? Okay. That's your review. That's where we are. That's where we're going. The author's going to continue to explain the superiority of Jesus. He's going to give us two more warnings, and he's going to give us lots of exhortations on how we are to live in the light of that. So I'm excited about this the next nine weeks that we're in here. Okay? Okay. What we're going to do is, if you want to get up and move around for a minute, I'm going to put a couple of verses on the board and we're going to do an activity with them so that I, so we can emphasize the importance of observation. Those of you all that are in here, have been in here, those that are not, have not been in here before, in the back of your book, the back pages are what we call, we just call them observation worksheets. All they are is the scripture typed out, double space, no notes, none, zero, nada. And we want you to learn how to mark that up, there's instructions in there. It's a learning process. Do the best you can. I've given you an example. We'll unpack it in class. The power of observation, of actually seeing what the text says. Before you hear what someone else says it says, 
or what a preacher says it says or a commentary says it says. Because the more you learn how to do this, the more you will discern. There are a lot of people out there that say things that are wrong. I've said things wrong. I cringe at the things that I, I said, that I in earnestness said that were actually a misrepresentation and mishandling of God's word because we're all in a learning process. It'll, it, these are tools and skills to open up the word of God to you. So take five minutes while I get this. Okay, are you guys ready? Are you ready? Okay, you are welcome to do this as an individual activity or in groups. I would encourage you to do it in a group, but here's what I want you to do. Someone in your group, and if there's just like a couple of you, if, if, there's, if you have a table that's only two or three, if you want to move over and combine with another table, two or three, feel, feel free, whatever you want to do. I have put two verses on the board. I have not told you where these verses are from. That's a hint. It's a scavenger hunt, Margot, of the scriptures. And what I want you to do is list everything you observe about these two verses, okay? Everything you observe. This is observation time. Those of you all that know how to do observations. Everything you observe about these verses, okay? I'll give you (coughs) 10 minutes. We'll see what you can do. 10, 12 minutes. Okay? Go for it. I had to do this my first seminary class, and here I had been doing observation worksheets for years, and let me tell you, I did not score well on this. There's my other hint to you. (laughs) It was very humbling. (laughs) Okay, go for it. How's it going? How, How many things do you have written down? Five? Ten? Anybody have ten things? Ten? Nobody has ten? What, what's, uh, uh, name some numbers of the things you have on your, just the number of things you have on your list that you observed about these two verses. You didn't write them down? You just talked about them? Okay. I had to have a list of 25. 25. Okay. Yeah, 25 observations and 10 questions you would ask of this text. Yeah, yeah, 25, which you all could have done. I promise you, you could have done. Let me read you this. I I debated whether to read you this whole story, and I've read it before. It's a classic, and if you've heard it before, it will will serve you well to hear it again. It's in a lot of um, biblical uh, hermeneutics books you know, first semester classes. It's the, the professor, the professor in the fish. I can't pronounce his name. It's like um, Agassiz. Have you heard this story? I've read it in here before, but it's been a lot of years. It's about a professor at, at a university. This is a true story. He was at Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology, and one of his students wrote this about his experience with him. And it is used often to teach um, in biblical circles the power of observing. So just listen as I read it to you. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory, Professor Agassiz, and told him I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my my objective in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally whether I wished to study any special branch. 
To the latter, I applied that while I wish to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purpose to devote myself specifically to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Well, now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it a homulan. By and by, I will ask what you've seen. When that, with that, he left. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment, for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. In 10 minutes, I'd seen all that I could be, could be seen in that fish. Did you feel like you'd seen everything you've seen in these two verses in 10 minutes? Okay. And started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour, the fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked at it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary, so with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that the professor had been in the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish and with a feeling of desperation looked at it again. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that this was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, he said. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what was it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of the parts, whose names were still unknown to me. The fringe, gill, arches, and movable, I don't know what the operculum, the pores of the head, freshly lips and lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin and forked tail, the compressed and arced body. When I'd finished, he waited as if expecting more and then with an air of disappointment. You've not looked very carefully. Why, he continued most earnestly, you haven't even seen the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again. Look again, and he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one more thing after another until I saw just how the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, did you see it yet? No, I replied, I'm certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That is next best, he said earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of that fish all night, studying without the object before me what this unknown, most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries. I must give an exact account of them the next day. 
I had a bad memory, so I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with two, my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I, that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical size with paired organs? He thoroughly pleased. He was thoroughly pleased. Of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good, that is good, he repeated, but that is not all, go on. And so for three long days, can you imagine? Three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. That was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study, a legacy the professor has left to me, as he left to many others, of inestimable value which we could not buy, but with which we can part. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and differences between the two. Another and another followed until the entire family lay before me, and a whole legion of jars covered the table and surrounding shelves. The odor had become a pleasant perfume, and even now the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant memories. The whole group of hamulans was thus brought into review, and rather engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, preparation, and examination of the bony framework, or the description of the various parts, the professor's training in the method of observing facts and their orderly arrangement was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. At the end of eight months, it was almost worth reluctance that I left these friends and returned to insects, but what I gained by this outside experience has been of great, greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. So that, that, is, that is a true story, and it's, it's used, like I said, it's used often in, how to, in books and in how to study the Bible. Observe, 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 and observe again. So tell me, let's just put a few things up here. We may not put 25 because we want to get done early today, but tell me some of the things you observed about these two verses. Let's just share around the room. Tell me what you observed. Don't be afraid. Okay. Who's persevering? Paul. Is it Paul? Do we know it's Paul? No. There's the trick question. Does it say Paul? No, but you know it's Paul. Well, I know it's Paul, but it just doesn't say Paul. That, that's, a, that's part of the point. That, that's a presupposition. Because what well, we do know it's Paul, but that's, that's part of the lesson is I want you to see it doesn't say Paul. All I have is these two verses. I don't have anything else. I, don't, I didn't even tell you, I didn't tell you it was Paul. I didn't tell you it came out of Philippians. Now, my guess is everybody in here knows, but it doesn't say that. So all I know is there's an author. That's the thing I do know. So the author is, what did you say, persevering? Okay, so I do know that. So I do, there's one thing. The author is persevering. What else?
So I observed there's something about a, a time frame, a win, and a reference to Day of Christ. Now, do you see right there how that could lead to a question? What is the Day of Christ? There would be a question. What is the Day of Christ? I don't know what. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know what the Day of Christ is. Okay. What else? I know you all had at least five or six things written down because I could see your writing. Okay. But we know these people, some are, that somehow they are to hold fast to the word of life, right? So hold fast to the word of life. That would lead to another question of how do I do that? How do I hold fast to the word of life? What is the word of life? You see how the, the questions are coming, the observations, the thinking, just by, you're not going to do this with just two verses on a regular basis. The point of it is to see what all you could do with two verses if you sat with it long enough. Just like this professor making this man sit here, this student sit there for days on end with this fish. You think you've seen everything you can about it, but if you'll keep looking and looking and looking, there's more. There's always something else that you could discover. That's why I say um, it's up to you how much time you spend on observations. You can just whiz through it in 30 minutes. You could spend 30 hours. And if you spend 30 hours, I guarantee you'll still keep seeing stuff if you keep coming back to it. Okay, let's get some more. Let's see if we can get at least 10. And how do you know that? Hmm? No, you are not supposed to use anything. You are only to look at these two verses. Maybe I didn't explain that well. Okay, but we know something about that the author is being poured out as a drink offering. We do know that. Okay, so we know that about the author. Yes, but not at first. I would encourage you to set aside how much time your schedule allows that you are willing to persevere through and say, I am only going to look at these verses on this sheet and nothing else for this much time. If it's 15 minutes, if it's 30 minutes, if it's an hour, if it's I'm going to do it 15 minutes today, 15 minutes tomorrow, 15 minutes the next day which is what I strongly encourage, is short periods over multiple days, because there's something about putting it down and then coming back that makes it a little more fresh. And then, and then after you've, you've really persevered that amount, allotted amount of time that you're going to set for you, and that's your goal and not someone else's goal, then, yes, you can start looking. You can start looking up. And that's part of the lesson. Part of the lesson would be, if, if we were doing a lesson on this, if we were studying Philippians, and we were in these verses, there would be a question in there and cross-references. What does being poured out as a drink offering mean? And there would probably be some Old Testament cross-references to point you there so you would figure out, oh, that's what that means. And what it means, just for those of y'all that don't know, it means it's a reference to he, he thinks he may die, that I'm going to be poured out in death as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. So that, that's what he's, I'm just going to jump ahead and say. But what my point of the exercise is just, what do just these verses say apart from anything else? Does that make sense? Okay. 
Okay, so that would be another question. What does it mean to be poured out as a drink offering? What does that mean? What is a drink offering? What is he saying when he, what is this author that we really don't know yet saying when he says that? Okay, give me another one. That is excellent. Cause and effect. So, brownie points, star. So, hold fast, holding fast. The cause, the effect is not laboring in vain. Cause and effect are often really hard to see. They, they, they're very difficult to discern. And I usually tell people, till you're a little more steeped in it, don't even try to work, look for those. But that is an excellent observation. Okay? What else? Yes, ma'am. Raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. Just blurt it out. Come on. Okay. Okay, so the author's saying I can be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor. Okay. That's good. And she just got engaged. How long ago? A couple weeks? And then next to her just got married. Lindsay, right? Just got married. Isn't that exciting? Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but it's just, it's exciting. Okay, actually, I did mean to embarrass you. Okay, seven. Good. Oh, come on, as a group, we can at least get ten, and then I'll show. I'll... Rejoicing of their faith. Does he say that? Okay, so the author is glad and rejoices. Okay, over what? Okay, so there's a little bit of a cause and effect. What's causing his, he, he is rejoicing because of what? Their faith. Okay. Three more. Okay. So, well, that kind of goes back up here. It's, it kind of combined with that, yeah. Poured out as a drink offering. Well, sacrificial offering, that, let's go ahead and put that. So there is a... He's poured out, but there is a sacrificial offering. What does he mean by that? Okay. Come on. Do what? Good. Okay. So you all, perfect, you all tells me this is a group. So if I were brand new and I had no idea where these verses came from, anything about them, and I didn't know they came out of Philippians, that's an excellent observation. This is, a, this is apparently an individual author talking to a group of people. Would you say he seems to know them? Yeah, so I, there's our ten. The author apparently knows them. He knows who he's writing. He knows who he's writing to. Okay, that's only ten. 
Can I share some more with you to show you how far you can go? And I didn't even make a good grade on this. Because I made the mistake, and I got dinged big time. I made the mistake, because he told us it was out of Philippians 2, of making all these observations, naming Philippians and Paul. And he says, where does it say Philippians and Paul? And dinged me about a letter grade. So, uh, and, and, and other things. Here's, here's some, just be, let me just give you some of the facts that you could have said. You see, if I'm observing this, you can see exhortation and encouragement. Don't you? Holding fast to the word of life. There's education, edu um, exhortation and encouragement. Uh, we've talked about being able to boast in the day of Christ. This author looks forward. Somehow, he looks forward to the day of Christ. So that in the day of Christ, I may be looking for, there is a day of Christ yet to come. We've talked about the laboring in vain. Did you notice there's, there's metaphors? That would be an observation. There's some metaphors here. Poured out as a drink offering. Sacrificial offering of your faith. Holding fast to the word of life. You don't literally hold fast. I don't literally grab this and hold it. But there's some metaphorical expression in what does it mean to hold fast to the word. So he's got several metaphors in there. And those metaphors are, are, are explaining something or illustrating the point he is trying to make. We've talked about the drink offering. Um, he says, I am glad. Did we talk about he's glad and he rejoices with them? Rejoices with them. See, I made the mistake of saying despite their circumstances. But these verses don't really tell me anything about their circumstances yet. Now, if I know off the top of my head being poured out as a drink offering, it, which I do, somehow points to he could be dying in, offer, in, in his death as a sacrifice, then I say somehow that his circumstances must be dire. They must not be favorable for him. There must be something going on. Now, I don't know from these verses, though. I do know because I know enough about Philippians that he's in jail for his faith. So that would be something I would find out later about him. Um, he shares joy with them. These people, whoever these people are, apparently have great faith. And they, he says, I re, I'm glad and rejoice with you. So in some respect, they must be rejoicing as well. We've talked about holding firmly to the word, his exhortation. There's apparently by saying holding fast, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud, that he is um, encouraging them to persevere. Do you all see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. I think that that's, those words are not exactly used there, but it's just bleeding off the page, isn't it? That he care whoever this author is cares about these people and loves them. Don't you, you see it? Do you see, though, now how if you sit with it, you start seeing more and more? Plus, you begin to ask questions. We've asked those questions. What does it mean to be poured out? How do I hold fast? You know, when is the day of Christ? What is the day of Christ? 
What is Paul's labor? What exactly is the relationship between these people? What is Paul's circumstances that he, the author's circumstances that he would be poured out? What do sacrifice and service references mean? You can, you can just sit there and, and sit with it and begin to find more and more things. You can begin to, you know, like I said, you see the metaphors, the cause and effect that, that um, we pointed out, pairs of words. You see pairs of words, run and labor, glad and rejoice. Um, tone of the passage, you know, that would be an observation. What is the tone of this passage? Annetta pointed out, we see great, that the author seems to have great love for these people. To me, the tone of the passage is also encouraging. Yeah, Phyllis? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And, and you begin to see things like um, holding fast to the word of life, look at this, so that, this purpose clause, so that what? So that in the day of Christ, when? So that I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in, in vain. You know, you see, you see the, the, the pronouns, I, you. The verbs, holding fast, be proud, run, labor, poured out, glad, rejoice, where those things begin to jump off at the page at you and take on. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm trying to to communicate to you? How by just sitting with it and paying attention to those things and using those tips as a guide, the scripture begins to take on more richness and more meaning to you. If you, it, you're meditating, basically it's tools for you to meditate on what these verses say and to do like this story says. If someone sat there, if I made you all go home and spend 30 hours on this and nothing else all week, I guarantee you would come back with at least 25 observations. You would have to. So go do it, not this. <laughs> go do Melchizedek in chapter 7. Set, you, set an achievable, attainable goal for you, yourself, at where you are in your lifestyle. You know, if you have little bitty kids or you've got the grandkids coming or you're also working and you're just off on Tuesday mornings and you're coming here, set that attainable goal. Sit with that chapter 7. And I guarantee if you'll sit with it and really observe it and get your pencil and your pen or your color pens or whatever and mark it up, then you go to those questions that, that I have given you. They won't be hard. You'll know them. You will have already seen those things. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm excited. I hope you all are excited to go forward with Hebrews this semester, and we will see you next week. If you have any questions, um, you are welcome to email me at... Email is... Oh, that doesn't work. Nan J. Freed at sbcglobal.net, and my phone number is 612-3385. If I can't talk to you, I will call you back. Okay? Have a great week. Enjoyed it. Glad to see all of you all.